This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are finishing John 7 and discussing the differing opinions about the identity of Jesus. I'm ready. And boy, do these opinions differ. They sure do. It's going to be one of my first points, but I'm going I'm to let you at least read like a whole whopping two or three verses before I interrupt you. So. <laughs> okay. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. All right, so here we are. And if you remember from last episode, in the last passage, there were there were people that were trying to kill him. First verse of the passage last episode, there there were people making plans to kill him. And then there were people that I'm going to assume as I read it, legitimately had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Like, what do you mean people are trying to kill you? You could read that as they knew, but they acted oblivious. I'm going to choose to read that as there were people that were like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Who's trying to kill you? That's ridiculous. You're possessed by a demon, they said in the last passage. And now here, one paragraph later, the people, you know, there's a whole bunch of people here saying, hey, is this the person people are trying to kill? So whether that's just the way that news spreads, or I prefer to read that, isn't culture, like this is the way that it is today. And I don't know why I would have ever expected it to have been any different in the days of Jesus, but the court of public opinion, the court of public knowledge, the things that people know, like I, I think of, I think of the way we respond to teachers today. Oh, Rob Bell, he's a heretic. He's a false teacher. Or, or you got people that are like, Rob Bell, he's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> or you got people that are like, Rob Bell, who's that? <laughs> like, you have people all over, and then in the midst of all of that, I, I even see in this passage different opinions within the different Jewish theologies and philosophies of who Messiah is going to be. Because in other Gospels and in other places, people were saying, well, Jesus has to be from this spot. Well, well he can't be from that spot. Well, he's got to be, well, Messiah has to be this, but he can't be that. And then you have people here that don't even know Jesus' backstory. So anybody that knew Jesus' backstory would be like, but he is from Bethlehem. Like, he was born there. But how much do people... And I just thought, man, how true is this of the world that we live in today, where everybody has a different understanding, everybody's got a different opinion, everybody's got a different conviction, everybody's got a different theology, and for all of us, it's just like set in stone. Like, well, this is obviously... I mean, obviously... And how many times do we draw conclusions? Because obviously, theology tells us that this has to be the case. And well, this just doesn't fit. And I wonder how often we, just like those in this paragraph, completely miss cold, hard facts and just have our truth out of whack. How many times our convictions get in the way? Just I just thought, how true is that paragraph to my experience today? I, I think very. I was wondering how widespread the knowledge would have been about him being born in Bethlehem because... Yeah, and probably not. Probably not. Because, I mean, how, you know, who is Jesus when he's a babe? I mean, we, we've got the fantastical stories, the sensational stories of the shepherds, and they went out and told everybody. But what does that mean? Who believed them? Because then Joseph escapes to Egypt, so then he di- he disappears for at least a, a 
a period of time before he comes back and then he doesn't settle in Bethlehem. He ends up settling in Nazareth. So, I mean, how much do people even know? It's probably not a widespread understanding culturally. That's probably not crazy at all to, to think that. Um, but you know, I, I, how, again, how true is that of the things that we know about and understand today? Yeah. Even with all of our internet, even with all of our archeology, span how how many just obvious things that we probably should know that we just don't and has gotten buried under all of our theology and assumptions and everything else? I was thinking there's also the, the uh, you know, referencing Rob Bell, there's also the people who loved him initially and then hated him later. And I'm I'm thinking, is, is love wins Rob Bell's eat my flesh and drink my blood oh. moment? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to get into that here on the Bayma podcast, but I love that question. Like, uh, well, I think and the, we, I and think we the answer is yes. Most people at that point were like, uh, not going to do that. <laughs> I just don't want any more emails. So I'm going to refuse to give any comment to that, but I, I love your connection there. I love it. Hey, if you, if you want to email me about Rob Bell, that's fine. <laughs> I haven't read the book yet. So, uh, <laughs> Oh, don't email me unless you've read the book and then we can talk because at least one of us has to have read the book before we can have a conversation i think uh, oh no oh no <laughs> all right well let's get back to the text then let's get back to the text then jesus still teaching in the temple courts cried out yes you know me and you know where i am from i am not here on my own authority but he who sent me is true you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Man, and again, you have this. I have just never seen this tone of John more clearly than I do now, kind of being forced to go through John verse by verse. This is the section, Brent, that I always, you kind of, I at least I do, I avoid John 6 through 9, 10, 6 through 8 at least. There's like all this really rabbinic conversation about above and below and from heaven and my father and I and all of this like really cryptic, I feel like mystical, heady conversation as John portrays it. This little mini paragraph here being no exception. And I just kind of have always avoided it. And yet now that, you know, kind of being forced to go through this journey verse by verse and really sit in this stuff and deal with it, John has a very unique tone. Um, to to the way that he he tells the story, and and it's not, that doesn't mean I don't necessarily think that Jesus. I mean, you're definitely going to have textual scholars that that are going to adhere to the school of textual criticism that are not necessarily going to in, uh, uh, affirm the inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures in ways that I will, that you and I will, Brent. But and they're going to look at this and they're going to be like, oh, this is just this is beautiful. But this is totally from John. There's no way that Jesus said those words that way. I mean, I'm not sure I I have to go that far. I can see Jesus saying these things. But as John tells the story and as he frames the words of Jesus, they definitely have a very consistent overtone to the last or an undertone to what we've been reading for the last few chapters where G- they're having this conversation. Nobody can see me waving my hand right now. I don't know what I'm doing. They're having a conversation on one level, and Jesus is on a totally different level. And I think back to Reed a couple episodes ago, making the point that Jesus is really not interested in making sure that everybody understands him. He's not like, no, 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 hold on, let me explain myself. He's not, you know, stop, 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 wait, let me let me try to translate. 
He's like, nope, you guys are stuck down here, and I'm up here. And I invite you to come up here. The air is a lot cleaner up here. Like, come join me in this paradigm. But you're stuck down there, and I'm not going to play. I'm not going to let you define the rules that I play by. I'm playing. And again, the same conversation that we've been talking about now for episodes, I feel like, Brent. But it's the same. I feel like the same tone there. Like, yeah, yeah, you know me. You know where I'm from. Yeah, of course you know where I'm from. But you know what? You don't actually know where I'm from at all. (laughs) It's just such a cryptic, you know where I'm from physically, and yet you completely miss the the origin that matters, which is where I'm coming from. I don't want to say spiritually, but heavenly. You're concerned about my earthly origins. I'm telling you there are heavenly origins that you're completely ignoring. And it's just, uh, it can even be frustrating as you sit here trying to exegete John. You're like, Jesus, could you at least have the same conversation as everybody around you? And he's just like, nope. I'm having the conversation I'm here to have, the one that I'm getting from my father. Yeah, that's more or less what the NET footnote is talking about on this phrase. And they suggest that you should read it in more of an ironic, sarcastic tone. Like, okay. oh, you, you know me and know where I'm from, do you? Sure. Uh, yeah, I love that. You yeah, think absolutely. you know, but you don't actually know. Yeah. You know on one level, but you don't know at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which definitely fits what I feel like I'm reading there in those verses. Yeah. So at this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, Which, what does that mean? Yeah. Does any NET footnotes on that? Uh, about his hour not coming? I don't know. Not necessarily about his hour not coming. That's very consistent to what we've been reading before. But anything on they tried to seize him, but nobody laid a hand on him? Well, they, they mention at this point that it is the crowd at this point um, that, yeah, is, sure. that is um, at play. And and whether, uh, whether seize in the sense of um, it's not really in a sense of like, restrain him or arrest him or something it's it's like i don't know i don't know what it is but they 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 make the distinction between what happens in this paragraph versus what happens later with the uh uh what is it the the temple guards temple guards sure there's a difference in the greek is what they're saying i don't even know if there's a difference in the greek as far as the actual word but just the fact that it is the temple guards versus the crowd oh 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 yeah sure absolutely and that and that, that is a key distinction that i think i'll make later in this episode or or elsewhere but yeah i i think this sense of like they are so upset with jesus and what he's and how he's avoiding and how he's deflecting and all those things and they just they want to seize him, and yet nobody lays a hand on him because they they can't. Very similar to, I think it was in Matthew where we talked about Jesus walking through the crowds, Brent, and we talked about is that some Jedi mind trick, like where people are like, but he just passed through the crowds, like almost like Star Trekky, or or is it that they wanted to seize him and and stone him in that passage, but there's nothing that they can actually. They're bound by Jewish law. They don't have they're, what they need. They're so busy arguing about what their reasons are that they can't actually do anything. Yeah, they literally have no basis to hurt him, and he knows that, so he gives them time. He lets them argue. Like, and what are you stoning me for? Nothing? Nothing? Anybody? Charges? No? Nothing? All right, let's go, boys. Like, that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of see the same in my mind. I see kind of the same. Like, everybody starts getting worked up. We're, oh, you're not getting out of here. And Jesus is like, Really? I think we're all at a dead end here, so I'll see you tomorrow. 
Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And uh, this this was, I think we talked about this in the last episode on John, but this is the, the thing in the Greek where there's um, a prefix to the question in the Greek that assumes a negative response. And this actually shows up like four or five more times through the rest of yep. this passage. So yep. they're saying, no, when the Messiah comes, there's not going to like, he's already at peak signs for Messiah. Yeah. Peak sign performance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, uh, and again, I, I just point out here, like there, we are not, there's not a monolithic crowd. There's a diversity. There's a split opinion. Um, there's another book on John written by one of my friends. I'm not sure if you can find it on Amazon or not. We can link it in the show notes if you can. It's um, Miracles of Messiah. It's written by a good friend of mine, Ron Miller. Um, and he's a he's a medical doctor, not necessarily a doctor in theology, although he does have a seminary degree, I believe. Um, and he's just, I, you know, he was, well, we talked about Andrew Miller a few episodes ago when we talked about the wedding at Cana. I referenced Andrew Miller. Ron Miller is Andrew's father. And he wrote a book, um, that has just a lot of cool theories in it, and I love the way he wrote the book as well. It's just packaged in a, a really fun way. Um, but uh, one of the things that he loves to point out is this Genesis parallel that John is making. And when it comes to the Jacob story, you keep having Jacob split his family up. It's it's the family of Rachel and the family of Leah. It's that group of sons. It's this group of sons. When they go to meet Esau, he takes the family of Leah and he sends them first. And he sends a, takes the family of Rachel and he sends them across. And then there's always a splitting, always two camps, always two groups of people. And he says, John follows a very similar motif of this, this group of the crowd loved him. This group hated him. They were split. They were divided. And they were divided. And they were divided. And so I, I just really, whenever I see that, I think, man, one of the things that John does not let you do is say, Jesus is here and the crowd is there. You know, Jesus is here and some of the crowd is with him and some of the crowd can't stand him. And uh, I always love to point that out when I go through it. All right. Uh, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now, what gets your attention in that, Brent? Uh, The chief priests aren't actually there. Okay. But then, so the Pharisees are... Hearing what's going on, they go back to conspire. I mean, we haven't been told they're there. You almost assume they are. You almost assume they are after that little, like, yeah, sentence there. Well, I suppose, but, but it says the Pharisees heard. Uh huh. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards. So I don't know. And what what strikes you about the chief priests and the Pharisees sending temple guards? Um, it's not really what they're meant to do necessarily. Well, they're opposing factions. The Pharisees and the chief priests are completely like opposed oh, people groups. Sure, sure. And so this is one of those cases that we talked about in session three, where you have there, there, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming on some level, just like we've talked about with the chosen commentary that we're going through for those of you listening in on that, you have these different you have Pharisees are also not a monolithic group. So you have some Pharisees that are pro Jesus's conversation, some that are against, some that are corrupt some that are politically motivated, some that are just self-righteous, religiously devoted. You have all kinds of different Pharisee groups. But obviously, there's at least some Pharisees working very intentionally in tandem with their opposing party because they both want Jesus dealt with. And so I I find that to be 
I, I don't like to read over that verse without going, whoa, Pharisees and chief priests are working together? That's a big deal. Yeah. Probably connected to the Sanhedrin. We talked about in the in session three, the corrupt Sanhedrin, the formal Sanhedrin. I'm assuming there are some corrupt political alliances and relationships there. I'm assuming that's who we're hearing about here. The text doesn't tell us. That's an assumption based on history, but that's probably what we're dealing with. Yep. So Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus finally clearing up everything using very straightforward language. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Just kidding. It's just more of the same here in John, right? He's having another conversation. And if you want to have it, Jesus says, you're welcome. But I'm not I'm not playing by your rules here. I'm not having the conversation that you keep wanting me to have. And you're going to see that in their response here. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where he will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And so you would think Jesus just wants to explain all this. But just like Reed pointed out a couple episodes, Jesus doesn't seem all that interested in making sure everybody understands him. He's having a conversation for those that we might say have ears to hear. But uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that don't get it because they're trying to have another conversation and force Jesus into something he's just not talking about. He's talking about something else, and he wants to talk to the people that are interested in having that conversation. Yeah, and the NAT here says in, in that opening statement, the Jews is actually the Jewish leaders. Um and they say, well, the, the leaders were mentioned before and after this point, but I'm not completely convinced on that in this particular case, because there's a lot of like the crowd tried to seize him. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering and it's like, they're all kind of right there. So I'm, I'm a little unclear if we should completely attribute these questions to the leaders only, or if it if it also would go on the crowd a little bit. Well, the fact that John makes a distinction would probably back up the NET's point uh, here because he doesn't just say they or the crowds. He does specifically use edui. Now, I would pro- I, I always prefer, I, I appreciate the NET saying Jewish leaders. I would prefer to always hear it as Judeans, which I'm going to typically see the mental image is going to be the Jewish leaders in that regard. But... And then it also makes more sense if it is the Judeans, well, typically the Pharisees are not Judeans. There will be Judean Pharisees. They exist. They might even be the ones that are more apt to team up with the chief priests. But the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, well, they are Judeans usually almost all the time. And so that language does make sense to me. I, I, I like how they're trying to make that distinction throughout John. Yeah, and most of the time it does seem pretty clear cut that it is speaking specifically of the leaders, I just think there's so much, so much crowd. Cause right after this, it says, you know, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, blah, blah, blah. Like he's, he's addressing a large crowd, I think, but I mean, maybe he's just, maybe he's there in front of the crowd, but he's actually just having this conversation Well, because we did see that previously where there's people around, but he's very clearly addressing specifically the whoever, you know, so, I don't know. Well, there's no doubt that he's talking to the larger crowds. In this instance, it's talking about their response. So, there's a particular group, I think. The the Judean response is, where is he? Like, he's talking to the crowds, 
the crowds can probably hear him no matter what he's doing. And yet this group is going like, well, where does he, where does he think he's going? Like, where can we go that he can't follow? Yeah. And that, that would strike me as a very Judean conversation and especially this like concern about the Greeks. Like, do you think he's going to be, Yeah, we've watched his ministry. We've seen the things that he's passionate about. Do you think he's going to go work with the Gentiles? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And just, yeah. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking you may have, you may have me window one over wind over. Come on. Uh, okay. So I'm going to reread that uh, portion on the last and greatest day of the festival. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time. The spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. All right. So this last and greatest day of the feast, what is the context of that? John's very adamant to point that out. I don't think we talked about this in session one. We might have, but I don't think we did. Um, I know I talk about it on my study tour, so you can come here to even a little bit more in depth, a little bit even more context when we talk about it. But the last and greatest day of the feast, this is a feast of which, what feast are we dealing with? Brent, remind us from last episode. Sukkot. So the, the last and greatest day of the feast, we're at Sukkot. It is this seven-day celebration where every night, if you're in Jerusalem and you're you're supposed to be, not that every single person always, every male always travels, but Deuteronomy says every male ought to travel to Jerusalem to observe three different festivals. One of them is Passover. One of them is Shavuot. And then the other one is Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles. And so you're living in your Sukkot. You're living in your sukkahs. Uh, every night at the temple courts, there's a, a special sacrifice designated by Torah. There's a, And every night there is a essentially um, a part of the ceremony, a part of the, of the ritual is that the high priest comes out and he has a pitcher of water and he... Uh, he walks around the altar seven times. He does seven laps around the altar. He walks up on the altar and he pours this pitcher of water out on the altar and it makes a huge pillar of smoke, as you might imagine. And it, it kind of reminds you, it makes you think of the presence of God. You're living in your sukkah, your, your sukkot. You're living in your sukkah. You're, you're, you're being remembered of your time in the desert following the pillar of cloud. But then on the last and greatest day of the feast, they have something special called the the water ceremony. And it's that last day, it's that eighth day. And you gather together for this last and greatest day of the feast. And and I, I, I'd have to go back and remember if there's a special sacrifice as well. But the water ceremony is slightly different than what you've seen in the seven nights preceding. On this day, the last and greatest day of the feast, the priest comes out, he's carrying the pitcher. This is, and again, Sukkot, when you go to those temple courts, you're not just living in your Sukkot, you're not just living in your Sukkah, but you also bring with something with you to the temple courts. Can you remember what that is, Brent? Uh, is this the palm frond? Yes, this is your lulav. You bring your lulav, and it's a palm frond, it's a myrtle branch, and it's a, a willow branch all all tied together with a citrus fruit. And you bring these palm fronds, and you shake them, and you shout. What do you shout at Sukkot, Brent? Hoshana. You shout, Hoshana, Hoshana, Lord save us. It comes from Psalm 118, if my memory serves me correctly. 
and Hoshana, Hoshana. And so you, this is what you're doing throughout the whole festival. At the at the water ceremony, by that last and greatest day of the feast, you've gathered there and you you have your palm fronds. Out comes the priest. He begins to circle the altar seven times and everybody's shaking their palm front and they're all shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Take care of us, God. It's this prayer. You're shouting Hoshana. You know, you got, you got, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem, tens of thousands of them, thousands of them gathered in the temple courts themselves, tens of thousands around there, all shouting at the top of their lungs, Hoshana. The priest gets up to the top of the ramp with the pitcher, and it falls dead silent. And the priest turns the pitcher over, only this time there's no water. Nothing pours out of it. And it's supposed to communicate the sense because you're shaking the palm fronds to remind you of what sound, Brent? Can you remember? Uh, the sound of rain. The sound of rain because Sukkot is the festival, seven days where you remember the ways that God has taken care of you. And it's connected to the fall harvest. And so you're being reminded that if God hadn't have sent rain that year, you wouldn't have a harvest. You wouldn't have your provision. And so you're remembering that. And now you see the pitcher empty. There is no water. And it reminds you that if God does not take care of you, if God does not save you, you are hopeless and in great despair. And so the priest walks back down the ramp and everybody starts shouting again, Hoshana, Hoshana. And it's this time it's even louder and it's more raucous. And the priest will actually walk all the way from the temple courts, all the way to the pool of Siloam. And you've actually, you've actually been with me at the pool of Siloam. And that's a hike, Brent Billings. That's a, that's a ways. Yeah. It's also it's also down, and it's not fun. And the priest goes all the way down to the pool of Siloam, and he, he dips his pitcher in the pool of Siloam and fills it up and walks all the way back up to the temple courts. The whole time, the whole crowd shouting, Hoshana, shaking their palm fronds. And he gets back to the, the altar, and he circles it seven times, and the whole crowd is just built into a raucous frenzy. And he walks up that ramp of the altar, and it falls dead silent. And this time he pours and the water comes out because God does save and God does provide. And the pillar of smoke goes up and everybody would have erupted in joyous celebration. Now, as Ray taught me this, as my teacher, my rabbi taught me this, he says, this is nowhere in your text. You don't read this in John here at all. But Ray says, if you're reading this, it's the last and greatest day of the feast. And you hear Jesus talking about what image, Brent? I am living water. Living water? Maim Chaim? Rivers of living water, for that matter. Like, yeah. No small volume. You're assuming that Jesus is doing this at the, at the water ceremony. And it says he stands up and cries out. And, and Ray said, there's only one time. Well, there are two of them. There are two moments when that makes sense to me, Ray said. And what are the two what are the only two moments? If he's standing up and crying out so that people can hear him, if that sends attention that people can hear him, and if the assumption that he's at the water ceremony is correct, what's the only two times that make sense, Brent? When the crowd goes silent. And that makes that makes this whole story have a whole nother layer of Boy, Jesus and his radical chutzpah. He went from telling his brothers, I ain't going to the festival. <laughs> My time has not yet come to at the water ceremony, potentially 
in the middle of a quiet moment, as everybody falls quiet, you hear Jesus's voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And, and, then, and then there's this whole debate. Then he says, streams of living water will flow from within him. And there's great debate about how the Greek is structured and who the him is. Are the streams of living water flowing from Jesus, or are the streams of living water flowing from the person who comes to Jesus? And a lot of people would say, well, Jesus is obviously the, and yes, Jesus says, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Obviously, Jesus is the living water. Come to me and drink. But is Jesus's point on the back end of that, that streams of living water come from him, Or is Jesus saying, if you come to me and drink, streams of living water will flow from you? Now, Ray was adamant it was the latter, that Jesus was saying streams of living water will flow from you. He is the source of living water. But if you come to him and drink, streams of living water flow from within you. Other people have argued that. But what was the very next verse? Brent, can you read the verse that's right after that? I think this answers the question for me. We'll see what other people think. Uh, by this, and this is outside of the quotation marks, not that the quotation marks are necessarily in the text, but uh, right. outside of the quotation marks in the NIV, uh, the NET actually puts it in parentheses. It says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. All right. Now, what does that do for, what does that, how do you, does that help answer the question for you of what Jesus meant himself or... Uh, whether where the streams of living water are flowing from? Yeah, I I guess not I don't know. For me it settles it as as my I, I think Ray was absolutely right. If if by this he meant the spirit, which they hadn't received yet, the author, whether it's John or a later parenthetical edition, whoever is making that edition for us is saying Jesus is talking about what's going to happen through the spirit, which they haven't received yet, but they're going to. Well, the only way that that's relevant is if Jesus is talking about those that come to him. You come to me and drink, streams of living water will flow from you. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because that doesn't make sense if he's talking about himself. Um, well, I guess you could read it that way. I guess you could. How do you How do you read that, Brent? Uh, well, I'm all mixed up in the NAT footnotes on this one because... Oh, wonderful. What do they say? Uh, Maybe the, they will confuse me more. This is a blockbuster footnote. So, Oh, I love it. And also they have it backwards from what we would normally think, perhaps. Um, okay. The So the way the NIV reads is what they call the Eastern interpretation. Okay. And, and the more traditional interpretation. And the way they punctuate it is, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, period. Whoever believes in me... As scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then the NET translates it what they call the Western way or the Christological way. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink, period. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. And they do say like there are multiple uh, potential sources for that quotation when Jesus says, just as the scripture says, um, they, they offer up a few different places in Isaiah and one in Zechariah that have been suggested, but apparently it's, uh, difficult to determine. Wonderful little remez to wrestle with. If you can figure out the remez, it's going to help us with the drosh. I love it. NET. I love it. Yep. And then, um, 
so as far as the different interpretations, it's like, well, uh, I mean, it's, it's seriously a huge footnote and there's tons of scripture references that, uh, that they list as like, well, the Western interpretation is looking at it this way. The Eastern interpretation is looking at it this way. Um, it's a huge list of, of people of names that you would know, um, from ancient times, as well as huge lists of modern scholars. This is apparently, uh, very, hot very divisive and not divisive necessarily, but like it is, it is pretty split. It's not like, Oh, overwhelmingly yep. it's this or that. Yep. It is very much, very much a debate. So it, it's a hot debate. I, I can't wait to just leave it. I just want to, I'm going to leave it with our listeners. My teacher thought one way. I happen to agree with them, but you should go look at Remez's. Go look at those NET footnotes and form your own opinion. Yeah. Because uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful little teaching right here in the middle. But I love the context of the water ceremony. What a dramatic, sensational, and I mean that in a good way. Okay, well, moment that Jesus creates. I do, I do have a little bit of water to pour on your theory there as well. Don't you do footnotes. that to me? Don't you do that to me? NAT is not the not perfect. It doesn't actually change. Uh, it doesn't actually change anything about what you said. But as far as which day it is, uh, so the the greatest day of the feast, the last and greatest day. So apparently, according to Deuteronomy. The feast is seven days, but then you see in Leviticus that there is an eighth day. Yes, um, that is it's mentioned separately, but there is an eighth day. It's very clear. Um, but then, which which day are they actually talking about here in John? Yep. is a little bit of a question. But uh, according to the Mishnah, the ceremonies that included water did not go past the seventh day. So this is probably actually the seventh day of the feast, not the eighth day. I'm okay with that. But otherwise, that's what the Mishnah says. Yeah. I'm, I mean, not that that would be my only authority, but I'd be okay. I'll adjust that, adjust that to seventh day if it so if it so suits your fancy. I'm fine. Yeah. Either way, I think it is still very clear that there's there's only you know a very very minimal number of places where Jesus could have stood up and yep. made a huge impact with what he was saying. And yep. so clearly, I think it, yep. it doesn't really change anything about what you're saying. But it is potentially probably the seventh day and not the eighth day. Um, okay. but beautiful. Who knows? And and then you got to like figure out your Jewish math too, like seventh Jewish day, eighth Jewish day, seventh night. Right. Like yeah. there's all that conversation too. So. And John's messing with time anyway, so it's like absolutely. <laughs> it's all <laughs> it's all a debate. Plenty of stuff to wrestle with after this. Plenty. So back to the text. On hearing his words, some of the people said, "Surely this man is the prophet." Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Man, you almost feel like there's a chiasm there. I don't have time to figure it out right now with you, Brent, but I, man, it almost feels like we just heard that just a moment ago at the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the... And again, I just go, yep, that sounds pretty normal. If they had Facebook, what an ugly little social media war that would have been. People in the comment threads, this man can't be the Christ. Somebody would have put up a meme about ad hominem arguments. It would have been great. would have been great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we'll even get into more of those debates, I think, in the next chunk. So should I continue on? Just keep on going. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? 
No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. All right, all right. Is it, before I make a fool of myself, I'm going to ask this first. Does the NET have any helpful footnotes on these two verses? <laughs> uh, on these two verses specifically, uh, let's see. I don't think so. They do They do reference the Sanhedrin. Okay. They're saying the chief priests and the Pharisees is probably a comprehensive term for the groups represented in the ruling council, a.k.a. the Sanhedrin. Okay, so that, mean, that means that they basically said with more sophisticated language exactly what I said just earlier in the episode about yeah. that saying. I do love that. I love it whenever they're going to make me look smarter. That's fantastic. Good job, NET. They, they also say, as servants or officers of the Sanhedrin, the, yes. the temple guards, the representatives, should yes. be distinguished from the Levites serving yes. as temple police. Yes. Whoa. Uh, I mean, yeah. Um, that would be really. I, man, I want to look further into that because that would be helpful in some other places as well. Yeah. But so yes, there's the, there's yeah. a number of scripture references that they talk about as far as where you would see the Levites serving as temple police. Temple police. Sure. Yeah. No. That's. Uh, yep. Yeah, I can follow that. They say perhaps, perhaps the earlier references here uh, in. John seven thirty and verse forty four, uh, but also in John eight twenty ten thirty nine nineteen six, and then again in Acts four three, uh, as far as where you might potentially see that role distinguished from this role. Okay, yeah, I would have to. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll look into that. But I, I love the notes that they're at. Man, the NET just continues to impress me with how thorough they are in those footnotes. Um. So, yeah, so when I read that, I, I'm I'm with the NET here. Finally, the temple guards. So I'm hearing the temple guards here being that, that hit squad that we talked about um, in session three. I mean, I can't remember which episode we'd want to link. If we'd want to link the Sadducee episode, Brent, I think that might be helpful. Maybe we could link that in the show notes. Mm. Um, there's also going to be a final week episode. Uh, probably the who killed Jesus episode we could link as well might be helpful. Probably the plot to kill Jesus. Okay. That's episode one thirty, And then the Sadducees episode is episode 76. Okay. So we'll link those in the show notes. But when I, when I, when I see this, finally the temple guard, I'm seeing that mafia hit squad that we reference in those episodes. Um, and again, if you're like, that sounds ridiculous. You need to go back and listen to that. Cause that is an absolute historical, real thing that the NAT even just referenced, working for the corrupt Sanhedrin. So there's the formal body, the formal Sanhedrin. And if there is a Levitical temple police, I'm going to associate that with the formal Sanhedrin. Then there's the corrupt informal Sanhedrin that meets at the house of the high priest, and they're going to have the temple guards. So that's your hit squad. So they come back to the priests and Pharisees. And again, there's that weird combo, but I love how the NET has said it's probably a Sanhedrin body. And they, and I love, I find this is hard for me to get my head around that. See, but now, now I'm toying with the NET suggestion about two different bodies of people. And I'm wondering if I have the exact opposite position of the NET here. Cause I wrestle with the idea here, Brent, tell me what you think that the mafia hit squad came back and was like, but he was just so amazing to listen to. <laughs> Nobody talks like this guy does. We were we were enraptured by his teaching. I find that weird 
But if it was the if it was the Levitical, if it was the Levite temple police, which would be hard to imagine, but they would be more like I can imagine them saying that line. That's weird. I I would have to wrestle with that some more. That's very interesting. So let me let me read the next paragraph. Okay. Please do. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So both of those questions have that Greek prefix where they're assuming the answer is no. So there, the Pharisees ask, you mean he has deceived you also? And they assume that they haven't been deceived. Right. Yep. Which could go for either party, but it could, you know, for either of our temple police options, temple guard options. But yeah, no, I, yep, yep. So interesting to read that, yeah. And that, that second question too, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? And again, it's an assumptive no. But then reading on uh, right after this, Nicodemus, who had gone to see Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Once again, also an with that no. prefix, yep, yep. yep. It's like, yep. no, clearly we don't. <laughs> they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And I'm assuming that's an assumptive no as well. Like they know he's not from Galilee and they're giving him, they're kind of giving him heat. Like, are you really, are you really taking this position right now, Nicodemus? Like, yeah. are you a Galilean? Cause we're all Judeans. Like, and Nicodemus is as portrayed, like not, he's no Galilean. He's, He's this member of the Sanhedrin. Like, what in the world, Nicodemus? Are you are you really taking that crazy, charismatic Galilean side? You're nuts. And you look into this, and you <laughs> go ahead and remind, do your little Bible study, and remind yourself of what the scriptures say. As the tone that I read that conversation with. Yeah, and you're right. That Greek prefix is on there. He's not from Galilee, uh, but the NET footnotes has done the Bible study for us. Uh, Ooh, hooray. <clears throat> says that Jonah was from Gath Hefer in Galilee, according to the second Kings 14. And uh, a, apparently in the Babylonian Talmud, it states there was not a tribe in Israel from which there did not come prophets. And so it's like, are they, are they, overlooking this intentionally uh or are they you know what are they doing here well the question would be is a babylonian talmud at play here or is it the byproduct of these kinds of conversations too because that's going to be you know a good century late so sometimes you wonder does a babylonian talmud or even things like the mishnah does that reflect the current like the conversation that would exist for john's conversation here or is it the byproduct of where these conversations ended up landing, you know, over the course of the decades that follow? Um, that's always a interesting, tricky little wrestling match. Yeah, and I wonder. Well, I do wonder about the Jonah thing, though, because they would have. And then you have your difference between the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, and and there's a tension there between those two. And I don't know what the interaction here would be in that understanding if there's any conflict there between the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. But you could have that at play as well. So very, very interesting here. It, it, the whole thing is just a very interesting interplay. No matter who the characters are, temple police, temple guard, I've never really spent a whole lot of time really learning a whole lot about the temple police. So I've got some homework to do on that one. But um, I always assume the temple guard here, to which when I read it was just like, man, that's crazy. If the temple guard went out there and they were like, 
we were totally confused. Like, why do you have us? Why do you have a hit job out in this guy? Because he taught like an amazing teacher. That is a weird response from that group of people, but fascinating nonetheless. Yeah, and they also offer that it could be a, a a reference back to how they misunderstand where Jesus is from on on the multiple levels. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fits with, yep, it fits with the same conversation we started with. Yeah, absolutely, it's a great point. Well, that's all we got, I think. A lot of fun things in there. I love the water ceremony discussion. I love the living water stuff. I love seeing the culture of humanity, which really is so different, but also hasn't changed over the course of 2,000 years. They still wrestle with the same stuff. I love wrestling with the Jewish context. So many good things in this passage today that I really enjoyed. Uh, And I would definitely encourage people to go back to those NET footnotes, uh, especially the one on the, uh, on the, the, uh, living water passage and like, look at all the references that are potentially at play sure. there because there's, there's so much stuff to dig into on just that one statement. So plenty, plenty of stuff to wrestle with. It's fun. I love it. Uh, all right. I think we're out of here. Okay, works for me. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIVCB. And you can find more details about the show at BamaOnDiscipleship.com. Uh, be sure to check out uh, those episodes that we referenced. If you have any questions about um, what the Sadducees are doing and what, what this uh, corrupt system is that, that is at play here, there's, there's so, many different, so many different things going on. Um, so please check that out if you're not familiar or if you just need a refresher. So, uh, so thanks for joining us on the Mayweather podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.